because I came close in 2010. The recession hits. My speaking business dropped off 80%. My wife and I lost everything we worked for in 25 years in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I, I, I had an itch on the roof of my mouth. I could only scratch the front side on my nickel-plated 38. And I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Underdog stories are happening all around us, not just in the movies or on TV. There are people out there beating the odds and overcoming adversity every single day. And on this podcast, we're bringing those stories to light. This is Tyler O'Shea, and you're listening to Hustle and Motivate. Today's episode of Hustle and Motivate is presented by the Underdog Newsletter, a short, bite-sized rundown of the best underdog stories in sports, hand-picked and delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Each week, we dig into the deepest corners of the sports universe to bring you the stories that don't always grab the national headlines. Articles, videos, and podcast interviews with the long shots, role players, and underdogs beating the odds. To sign up, just go to jokermag.com newsletter. That's jokermag.com newsletter. Today's guest wrote for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for over 20 years. He was a part of the longest nonstop comedy club road trip along with fellow comedians Adam Sandler, Jerry Seinfeld, and Ellen DeGeneres. Nowadays, Frank King is known as the mental health comedian, speaking all around the country about suicide prevention. Ever since his first TED Talk, where he revealed his story and came out as depressed and suicidal, Frank has saved a countless number of lives. Frank and I covered a wide range of topics in our conversation, from the most frustrating misconceptions about suicide to the hilarious idea he had while suffering a heart attack on a logging trail. This is a wide-ranging and free-flowing conversation that gets into the nitty-gritty of depression and suicide. So before jumping into the action, I just wanted to give you a heads up that some of what you'll hear may be a bit jarring. But I think this is a really important conversation that can help a lot of people, especially in our world today. So, with that being said, here is Frank King. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely not. I got nothing. I'm sorry. We need to cut this short. <laughs> I got uh, I got some place to be. Uh, no, I'm Frank King, K-I-N-G. I'm the mental health comedian. I speak on suicide prevention, oftentimes as a workplace health and safety issue, sometimes at colleges, sometimes uh, you know for uh, large nonprofits. I told my first joke in the fourth grade. Everybody laughed, and I thought, hey, I'm going to be a comedian. And then 12th grade, they had a talent show, and nobody had ever done stand-up before. This is 1975. About the time that Leno went to Hollywood, living in his car, eating so many oranges, his mouth cracked on the other side. That's the, way, that's the way the story goes. And told my mom after high school graduation, I'm going to be a comedian. She goes, well, honey, you go into college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, go heels, and got two degrees. And my high school sweetheart went to the University of Arizona, but we maintained a long-distance relationship um, and got back together after college. And then I couldn't get a job. I interviewed 77 times at the UNC Placement Center, very fine placement center, but 
no second interviews, no job offers. I'm sure now they looked at me and they thought, this guy's a clown, and they're correct. So her father helped me get a job at his insurance company. They moved us to San Diego. San Diego, I don't know if you know this, but they have a branch of the comedy store. So that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career with her old man's company. Because yeah. um, I, I, I did, did my first five minutes on stage there. Actually, here's what I tell people who are thinking about doing comedy. Go to the open mic, see how bad 75% of the people are, uh, and that'll give you the courage to get up. So I went twice. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm funnier than these people when I'm just walking around. So I got up, and about halfway through my set, I heard inside my head, I'm home. And I decided that night, in the middle of that five minutes, I was going to do it for a living. I had no idea how. Wow. Um, my wife decided after that night that I don't want to be married to a comedian. That's just not what I signed up for. <laughs> so she did me a great big favor. She left me, and I mean, I'm glad she did. She pulled the plug, and I, that was, you know, I was, that was perfect. Um, I then, um, and by the way, my third TED Talk is called Suicide, The Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. And I had my first thought of suicide. It runs in my family. It's called Generational Depression and Suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. I'll spare you the details. If you go to franktedtalk.com, that URL will take you to my first TED Talk where I came out as depressed and suicidal and tell that horrific story. That's franktedtalk.com. Anyway, um, as we were getting separated and getting ready to get divorced, I remember having my first thought. Um, it's called chronic suicidality. I have major depressive disorder, better known as depression, and something called chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. When I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidality. And every time I speak, I tell that story. And almost every time I speak, somebody comes up after my presentation, and they've got it. And most often, they have no idea it has a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak because of the way they think. Happened last Thursday night. I got done. I usually do a general Q&A. And this is like, if you got questions you want to ask, you don't want to ask in front of the entire group, I'm going to hang out. So I hung out. Young woman comes up. She goes, I'm your one. I said, my one what? She goes, I'm your, I'm, I'm your one with chronic suicidality. And I said, and I bet you didn't know it had a name. She goes, no. And I bet you thought you were just some kind of freak because the way you think. She said, yes. So the upside of that is I was married to the wrong woman, although a fine woman, um, in the wrong business, although insurance is a great business, just not for me. I felt like I was walking around somebody else's life. And I was not going to the comedy store to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged. And I realized that I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later if I didn't do something. And then I thought, well, what the hell? I can divorce my wife, quit my job and insurance, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So that's how suicide is the secret of my success. And I've met several people, entertainers and entrepreneurs, who had a very similar thought process. They're living a life they realize is not really where they belong. They felt like they feel like me walking around the wrong life. They got a great idea, something they think they should be doing. They realize they're suicidal. And they think, what the hell? See, the thing is, and I had this discussion with somebody yesterday. Let's say I had a twin brother who was neurotypical or neuronormal. And he had the same situation. Married, miserable, job, miserable, wants to do comedy, not doing it. But he doesn't have mental illness. So he could think, I can divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, oh, my God, I would lose everything. So because I had nothing to lose, 
I was able to roll the dice, bet it all on one roll, because with chronic suicidality, you're sitting in the exit row in the window seat of life. That's, you can always, you've already crossed the barrier, mental barrier, where you think, I, I can kill myself. Because I came close in 2010. The recession hits, my speaking business dropped off 80%. My wife and I lost everything we worked for in 25 years in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I, I, I had an itch on the roof of my mouth. I could only scratch the front side on my nickel-plated 38. And I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. I didn't pull the trigger because having sold insurance, I looked at my life insurance policy. And sure enough, two-year suicide clause. You have to wait two years from the day you buy it, two years in a day, to kill yourself. Otherwise, they don't pay anything. Two years in a day, they pay the million bucks. So I had to wait two months to kill myself. Again, because I was willing to do it two months in a day, it allowed me to make it through those two months, knowing the pain would end. And that's what people, people always ask me, why did so-and-so want to kill themselves? Why did so-and-so want to die? Chances are they didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to end the pain. And that's generally what happens with a suicide. So back to um, San Diego and the comedy store. Got separated from my first wife, met my second wife. A uh, girlfriend at the time, I said, look, I'm going to go on the road to do stand-up comedy. This is December of 85. I got 10 weeks booked going on the road to do stand-up comedy full-time. Do you want to come along? She goes, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. I was surprised. So, we put everything we couldn't fit into my Dodge Colt, tiny car, uh, into storage, quit our jobs, gave up our apartment, hit the road. And I was on the road with her. She just came along for the ride for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven years and change. And we worked with and lived with, because back then he used to put you up in a comedy condo with three bedrooms rather than a hotel. Worked with and lived with Ron White and Foxworthy and Dennis Miller and Ellen DeGeneres and Rosie and Kevin Neal and Adam Sandler and uh, Kevin James and, um, uh, you know, um, Billy Gardell. I mean, the, back when they were just comics on the road, we were all on the road together. It was an amazing time to be alive and on the road doing stand-up. Yeah. And, you know, not every week was the improv or the funny bone you know most of it was the glue that held the tour together was horrible one-nighters i call them hell gigs you know people screaming tell us some jokes we can dance to <laughs> okay here comes a slow one you can slow dance um 94 comedy booms about to bust i had mentioned the radio station in my hometown the rock station look if you ever need a dj morning dj and there was a time when they were hiring comics to do morning dj work i'd love to be interviewed so i went in and interviewed and they said, you take direction well. And I said, look, I'm a comedian. I'm a knowledgeist. I became a comic because I don't take direction well. And they hired me. And I took a number one morning show. And I drove it to number six in 18 months. One of my proudest accomplishments. And they fired me. Can you guess why? Because I couldn't take direction. <laughs> I told you guys that. And then because I'd been a clean comic, I made the jump to corporate, you know, the rubber chicken after dinner circuit, which pays a ton better. People are like, what's the difference between a comedian and a, like a corporate comedian and a club comedian, about five grand plus travel. So I did that for and made a potload of money until the recession hit. And then the bottom dropped out. And then when things began to come back, people said to me, look, Frank, we'd love to book you, but we can't just book a funny guy. We need somebody who can teach our audience something. So that's when I realized I did have something to talk about, the, the suicide prevention message because of my family history, because of my history, because I came so close. Did my first TED Talk in 2014. And in that TED Talk, I came out as depressed and suicidal. Nobody, my friends, my family, my wife, nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal. 
So I came out in that TED talk in an effort to rebrand from funny speaker to speaker who was funny. Somebody would actually do some serious, you know, teaching. And that was the beginning of my career as a suicide prevention speaker. Back then I spoke about 25% of the time, comedy about 75. Now it's 75% speaking on suicide prevention, 25 on comedy. I'm getting ready to do my fifth TED talk on Sunday. Wow. It's on mental health. It's a little funnier than the other ones. It's called, and I'm not making this up, Mental Health and the Orgasm. <laughs> Treat your depression single-handedly. And by the way, my cell phone is my second favorite handheld device. That's the opening <laughs> joke in the uh, TED Talk. Oh, come on. You can't tell me it wasn't a big day in your life when you discovered that little one-piece home entertainment center. <laughs> Were you like me the first time it went off by accident? My first thought, oh, how do we man. make that happen again? So that's, that's the opening of the TED Talk. Uh, by the way, it took me, I had to apply, I applied to 12 different, 13 different TED Talk committees before somebody tumbled to that. I knew it was going to be a, uh, an uphill battle because not not everybody, I actually got called back by Duke TEDx and um, um, Asheville TEDx. I got a second round, I got to the second round, but didn't get any farther. But this, they thought this was the best thing they'd heard. And so I'll be doing that in Durango, Colorado on Sunday, my fifth TED Talk. So how does that process work? You mentioned going through and applying for the TED Talks. Um, if for your listeners, the, you type in TEDx events in your Google search, you'll get a map of the world. And then you, there's a box that says region. So you type in United States and then you type in year 2020. And then you type in the month. And I would type in like four months hence because a lot of these TED Talks have a long ramp up period. So if you're doing it today, I would say type in April 2020, and then it'll bring up a map of the United States, and then I'll show you where all the TED Talks are in April in the U.S. And I usually start near my home, although I've never done one in Oregon, but I start geographically, and I work my way across the country hmm. um, for you know each, because if I have an idea, I just keep applying until somebody tumbles to it. And the trick, by the way, for your listeners, when you get to that event page, it's not going to have a link to apply. You have to, they don't make it really easy. My advice is check, check the Facebook page, see if that TED Talk has a Facebook page and message them. Hey, when does the window open to apply for your TED Talk in April of 2020? Or the organizers go looking for them on LinkedIn, same question. Hey, I saw your TED Talk. When does it, and you can always nominate yourself. And all the applications are roughly the same. So when you fill out the first one, save your, you know, your answers in a word doc, cause you can just cut and paste at that point. Mm -hmm. And it makes it applying for the next ones easier, but that's how it's done, but they don't make it easy. You have to Facebook or LinkedIn or some way to find that link. Matter of fact, I got one. Oh, and I tell people, look, when that happens, when you find their Facebook page or their website, make sure you sign up for their email list or follow them and like them so that next year when, you know, when the window opens, you get an email, you get a Facebook message, because I got a message this morning from um, Dupree, Georgia. It's a TED Talk in Dupree, Georgia, and today is the day the, the, you know, the link went up, applications are now being accepted. That way, you know, you don't have to go searching every year. Yeah. Um, you, get, you get noticed that, hey, and the window only stays open generally about a month. And so, um, anyway, that, that's the process of getting a TEDx. And people ask me, Does it, have you gotten any gigs from the TEDx? I can't draw a straight line back to them, but on my Gmail in the bottom of the page in the signature, there's four TEDx talks across the bottom. Yeah. And so when people scroll down, they're like, damn, uh, it's just the credibility, you know, for me, especially as comic, um, for them to see that I can do something serious. 
And that, that, that was the reason that's the reason I do them is it gives you those big red letters behind you give you some credibility. So definitely. So getting back to you, Stop, forget about me, forget about me. <laughs> when you decided to come out as, you know, having this depressive disorder and the suicidal thoughts and stuff, how did you find the courage to make that decision? Well, you know, after you've stuck a gun in your mouth and after you filed bankruptcy and given up everything, including your self-respect in a bankruptcy, you know, again, with nothing to lose, (laughs) nothing more powerful than somebody who doesn't give a, can I cuss on your show? Sure. (laughs) Give a shit. You know, somebody doesn't give a shit. Uh, You know, I'm I'm 62, almost 63. Um, Men in my family don't live that long. They have the the life expectancy of middle-aged fruit flies. Um, My dad died at 40 of a heart condition. Fortunately, I had fixed. Um, but the other men in my family, you know, uh, one cousin who's 70 something, the rest of them are gone, long gone. So, you know, I, I t- the joke I wrote was, um, was it, um, I'm something about my, something about my mortgage and how I'm upside down. Oh, uh, I'm living on borrowed time and I'm upside down the loan. That was it. <laughs> no, because, um, I knew that, uh, I somehow intuitively knew that coming out as depressed and suicidal would appeal to people who are depressed and suicidal because as I was preparing for that TEDx, um, I did my chamber of commerce called and this is a Tuesday and they said, Frank, uh, the speaker for tomorrow, Wednesday, they bailed out. Could you come in and do 20 minutes? And they were thinking I come in and do comedy because, you know, and I said, sure, if I can do my dress rehearsal for my TED talk, I didn't say anything else. So I go in there and I got my notes, my PowerPoint, I have no ideas on depression, suicide, you know, so I'm going through my notes. I'm doing the TED, you know, the PowerPoint, not really paying attention to them. 18 minutes. I look up when I finish. They're all standing, you know, standing ovation. Uh, half of them are crying, applauding. And I thought, oh, boy. Well, and what I discovered was, even though 47,000 people died in the U.S. last year of suicide, 47,000 is one every 11 minutes, people don't talk about it. However, and this is the key. This is what people hire me to do. If you mention it out loud, depression and suicide, people tell you the most amazing things. Some people I've just met. You know, it's like I, I consider myself the permission fairy. I give them permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression, thoughts of suicide. I'm on a ship one morning because I work on Holland America about 12 weeks a year. Matter of fact, November 14th, I'm leaving for Ho Chi Minh City. I'll catch a ship there and sail to Singapore and then fly home. Um, so I'm on the ship. It's morning. It's breakfast. It's the height of breakfast. Can't find a seat. There's a water table for two. And I point to the chair, the empty chair, and she nods. I sit. She looks up. She goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, hey, did you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I did. I go, then I'm the comedian. She laughs. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I didn't like the comedy show? Uh, they tell me I look a lot like it. Uh, she asked me, and a lot of times um, they ask me this is cruise comedy all you do? And I said, no, I do about 12 weeks a year. I'm, I'm a public speaker. And I said, if you don't mind me bragging, I just nailed down my first Ted talk. She goes, I love the Ted talks. What's the topic? Okay. I figured I knew what was coming. So I said, uh, depression and suicide and started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. She says, I tried to kill myself twice. We have just met. She goes, first time in college, not particularly serious. Second time, far more serious, right? She goes, I had graduated college. I graduated medical school, had the knowledge, had the equipment, had the IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other. 
and the phone rings. So does she answer it? She goes, well, I figured out better because it might be somebody who would worry, come over and interrupt. Picks up the phone, her 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if you heard something in my voice. I had a premonition, but he said, mom, don't do anything. So she said, I didn't. I did not give up on the idea of suicide, but I refused to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty when there's something he could say or do to stop it. Well, here's the thing. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to step in and go, stop. Um, so I said, well, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? This, is, this, is, this, this became my career. She said, how do you know? No, he doesn't. How do you start that conversation? I thought, that's, that's going to be the name of my keynote. Start the conversation on suicide. That's going to be the name of my book when I write it. Start the conversation on suicide. That's going to be my URL. Start the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's what people hire me to do, simply to start the conversation, to give people cover, you know, give them, give them permission to talk about it out loud. Because once, once you broach the subject, they, everybody's, you know, I told you my TED talk in Durango is um, mental health and the orgasm. Treat your depression single-handedly. Okay, somewhere in there, I'm going to say, you know, I speak on suicide prevention. And what I've noticed is, even though people don't talk about it, if you mention depression and suicide, everybody has a story. However, if you mention masturbation and orgasm, everybody has someplace else to be. So <laughs> people don't talk about suicide and, and uh, depression. They really don't talk about masturbation and orgasm. Um, so that became my, so that's, when people tell me why they hired me, Besides the fact that I'm, I'm, I have a message, you know, I have, I have takeaways, learning objectives. What I do is I teach them signs and symptoms, depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. You know, how do you handle that? That somebody throws a hand grenade into your lap. They also hire me because I'm a comedian and they much rather hear from a comic than a clinician. But they also hire me because I'm able to start the conversation. I have no problem standing on stage and being vulnerable. See a man on stage. And I get choked up oftentimes, several times during my keynote. And to see a man on stage getting choked up and being vulnerable and, and exposing the darkest, you know, shining a flashlight in the darkest corners of his psyche in public is, has a great deal of, you know, power. Uh, people go, you're so brave. Um, <laughs> brave, I just don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, because I'm living on borrowed time. I mean, I could, if, if my insurance had been paid up, I'd be long gone. But here I am. So apparently I had more work to do. So. Yeah, that's my underdog story. Coming back from a Chapter Seven, lost everything, yeah. bankruptcy. So, at the end of a lot of your TED talks, you talk about how people are not alone in this, and you mentioned the stories that people tell you. When you were going through it yourself before the internet was around, how did you find, figure that out for yourself that you're not alone? I didn't, um, and and if and and I would not have reached out to anybody. Uh, after the bankruptcy and before I kill myself, I, I was, I had a plan, play, uh, time, place, method. I was going to pull the trigger. And I, and, and three times as many women attempt than men, but men tend to complete because they use a handgun. And mine is loaded with federal hydroshock hollow points. You don't come back from that. So um, I took a supplement for a long time called SAMe, S-A-M-E. You can buy it at Costco. It's, it's good on mild depression. It's also good for your liver and your joints, by the way. Um, and then I turned, and it took, took the edge off for a lot of years. I turned 60, and my wife goes, for God's sake, you're 60. Ask the doctor, you know, tell him your story. And every doctor, by the way, is supposed to ask you two questions every time he sees you or she, she, she sees you, which are, 
Um, have you have you stopped taking joy in social activities you used to take a lot of joy in? And have you felt hopeless in the last two weeks? And if you answer yes to one of those, there's seven more questions. It's kind of a mental health screening. But doctors nowadays are pressed for time. Some of them really don't want to hear the answer because, <laughs> you know, you I'm depressed and suicidal, help. Then they got to do something about it. So I went in to see my doctor and I said, you know, my wife thinks I should get a little something for my depression. He goes, well, describe it. So I described it to him like I did to you, you know, get it fixed by and I can just kill myself. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Oh my God. Wait, hold on. You know, hold on. Hold on. Wrote me a prescription for something called, yeah, Wellbutrin, which by the way, um, it was a roll of dice. Um, uh, it happened to work for me. I found that well with Wellbutrin, 50% of the people that take it love it. The other 50%, oh my God, it was horrible. So uh, here's something your listeners may not know. Let's say you get on Wellbutrin and it just sucks. There's a cheek swab DNA test for psychotropics. They take your DNA and they match it. They try to match it with the psychotropic medication, depression, whatever, that best works with your metabolism. So you get a lot of that, a lot less of the lab rat, go on, taper off, go on, taper off. Yeah. And it's a couple hundred bucks. You can actually buy one over the counter for 40 bucks at Rite Aid. Not quite as you know accurate as the one you get from the doctor for a couple hundred, but most insurance covers it. It's just a great way to, to you know, because the list of antidepressants is huge. So um, anyway, it worked for me. Um, and two weeks in, my wife noticed the difference in me, but didn't say anything. She wanted to see if I noticed. Three weeks in, I had this thought for the first time since high school. Now, bear in mind, I have a good life. I'm married to a wonderful woman who's way too good looking for me. Thank God for low self-esteem. Uh, I do. I talk for a living and people hand me big fat paychecks. I mean, sometimes I walk out of that conference room with more money than if I'd gone in with a gun and robbed everybody. So I've got a good life. But for the first time in my life since I was 18, I had this thought unbidden. I like my life. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> Where did that come from? And then I thought, a second thought was, why did I start take? Why did I not start taking the antidepressants years ago? Doesn't make me giddy, but it takes the edge off. Um, my down cycle is shorter, and they're farther apart. Still get, you know, still major depressive disorder. Two week, two days to two weeks, and recurs, and it's not situational. Generally, it's just, you know, I've been most depressed at the best times in my life. So yeah, it just took the edge off, and so uh, you know, and my doctor offered to bump it up. I'm like, no, you know, it's just enough to keep me, you know, going. So, um, so that's, so I, yeah, I guess to answer your question is I didn't reach out. Although I have a friend who has bipolar, uh, my best friend from North Carolina. Uh, he had his first suicide attempt at the age of four and then eight and then 12. And so if I needed somebody to talk to, talk me off the ledge, then I would call him. And again, that's my advice to people. If you're suicidal, call the suicide prevention lifeline. Or the text line, which is uh, you text the word help to 741741. If you're not suicidal, just having a really shitty day, call a crazy person. Because we're not going to be judgmental. We're not going to tell you what you should be doing. In, in mental health, they call it shit all over. You should do this and you should do that. We're just going to sort of co-sign your bullshit. Just go, oh, my God. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. Oh, I can't believe you went through that. So, so yeah, if I had advice for people that were going through that, they weren't suicidal you know, actively. Call a crazy person. Call me. You know, put my. You can put my cell phone number in your show notes. They can call me. And every now and then, somebody calls me, and I pick up the phone. They're like, "Oh my God, this is your fax number." I go, "How, how much of an asshole would I have to be to give out a fake cell number and say, yeah, if you're having problems, give me a call.'" <laughs>
Or how about this? Hold, please. Another one bites the dust. Then another one. <laughs> another one. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's basically my, you know, and, and I my, my third TED Talk was mental benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because I discovered, and, and uh, this, this is kind of what mentally ill people do. We see patterns where others don't think patterns exist. I saw a pattern in that everybody I met who had a mental illness, who wasn't completely dysfunctional, also had some kind of superpower. Artistic, funny, great writer, musician. I said that to my sister who has anxiety and depression. She goes, superpower? We're not the X-Men. We're the Xanax men. <laughs> but that's who we are. It's, it's everybody I met had some kind of, you know, um, Especially parents. Parents, the first paragraph, when they tell you about the kid, he's got bipolar, blah, blah, blah. Second paragraph, but you know what? He's really funny. He's athletic. He's smart. He's artistic. He's, I mean, it kept repeating itself over and over. So that's why I did the, I did the TEDx was to encourage parents to treat the, the mental um, disability and enhance, embrace, and energize the mental abilities. You know, let's say a kid's got OCD. Well, the STEM curriculum, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, perfect. Because in all those disciplines, for every question, there's one right answer. One. You know, and, and you put a kid with OCD in humanities or art, or I mean, they're like, uh, 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 uh. But STEM is perfect. And then steer them in a direction to a business, like accounting, where they really reward attention to detail and precision to the penny. You know, I think, I think the individual education plan, the IEP, should truly be individual. I had a friend of mine who taught music instruments, like the trombone, whatever, at a high school. And he said his best musicians were the kids with ADD, ADHD. But he said, I could strap them in a chair. I could have them play whatever for 50 minutes. He goes, first 10 minutes, they got better. The next 40 minutes, waste of time. So what he did was, on a whim, on intuition, he got an egg timer. He said it for 10 minutes. He said to the kid, look, now play your scales for 10 minutes. When the egg timer goes off, we'll do something else. Ding. Okay, now let's practice your breathing for 10 minutes. When the egg timer goes off, we'll do something else. Ding. Okay, now let's practice the piece you're going to be playing at the concert on Saturday. When the egg timer goes off, we'll do something else. Ding. The kid relaxes, knowing he doesn't have to do the same thing for 50 minutes because he spends a great deal of his energy trying to keep himself or herself in the seat and doing it. All that energy is wasted. It's just burned off. And, and so... At, so you, you not only design the curriculum to fit the child, you design the teaching methods to fit the child. So it truly is an individual education plan. And then again, steer them in a direction, you know, where whatever they have, whatever ailment they have is prized by the company they go to work for. Google and several other companies begin hiring people on the spectrum for their special abilities. And they reward them mightily for those. Now, if you think about this, if you do that, it reduces stigma. And bullying, because you you are embracing, enhancing, energizing these abilities. Yeah, Billy's weird, but have you seen him draw? Oh my god! Or there's a kid named Mason. I was doing a training. Guy came up. He goes, "Yeah, my kid's got autism." I go, "Well, what's his superpower?" And he goes, "Well, he's really athletic. We bought a membership at a uh, swim club. Taught himself to swim the Australian crawl, breathe on both sides in two weeks." I go, "It took me a month to figure that out. I taught myself to breathe on both sides, but it took a month." And, and I said, uh, anything else? He goes, well, on land, he's really fast. We went to a special Olympics, he said. And it's the 100-yard dash. So there's Mason lined up with the kids. Gun goes off. Mason has no idea what the gun's all about. He just stands there looking around as, all, as the other kids take off. 
So the father goes, it was like Forrest Gump, run, Forrest, run, <laughs> run, Mason, run. So Mason realized he's supposed to be running. He closes the 20 yards between him and the kids and beats everybody with a 20-yard deficit to start with. I said, here's the deal. Think about this. As a child, as a boy, years from now in junior high, high school, when they're picking up teams for sandlot football, touch football, there's a big difference between being picked first and being the weird kid picked last. So if the, the guy, uh, you know, two captains and one of the, one of the, okay, listen, your first pick, I know Mason's weird, but the guy is an amazing wide receiver. Trust, just trust me, pick him. So that way you reduce the stigma and the bullying because Mason has a, a really a super ability. So, you know, whatever Mason wants to do with it, swimming or basketball, baseball, football, soccer, you know, let's, let's be all behind that. Whatever he loves, let's go all in. And that's what the, the father and the mother planned to do. So probably more than you ever wanted to know about. No, that's an amazing <laughs> suggestion about picking like the order of picking kids. Cause that's something like for me, when I was young, I just noticed like the guys that were picked last, they would just stay with them for years and years. Yeah. It, it's, it's like your permanent record in school. You know, you're, you're the kid. Um, I know I'm not great at basketball. I love the game. I have lungs and legs and heart. Yeah. You know, I, me too. <laughs> I, I was playing one time in Centre. We're living there, and there's um there's a loose ball, and one of my one of my teammates is standing between me standing between me and the loose ball. So I I just clocked him going by, <laughs> and I got the ball. And he came up and goes, "Man, I'm on your team." You, you know, you're, I go, "Dude, you're fucking standing there, no use to anybody." And I said, "By the way, here, live with this. The guy who knocked you down has an AARP card. Live with that." <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's um. Yeah, that last pick, first pick, if we can yeah. change, because the whole, the whole point of the TED Talk was changing the frame for these children and their peers from, you know, the freak to the, the somebody with super abilities, uh, maybe a little strange, but, uh, you know, they've got these, these super, these super, the super, super powers. Well, I get to get this, the TED Talk, and by the way, here's how the TED Talk starts. What if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation. So it starts with a big what if. Well, the big, the Ted mothership, uh, somebody read my, you know, saw my talk, and they put a disclaimer on it, which is this. It says, there is no scientific evidence that being mentally ill gives you superpowers. Duh. <laughs> I never claimed that. I said, what if? You know, it's just something I've observed. I'm just, yeah. I'm just pointing out that this is not, uh, I don't think this is a coincidence. And most of my talks, you know, are, are that sort of thing where I'm just pointing out something that's right there. Just nobody ever put all the pieces together and said, Hey, d d take a look at this. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So we, we've touched on it, but for you, what is the most frustrating misconception that we often hear about suicide or depression? Um, well, we've already covered one, which is why did he, he or she want to die? Chances are they didn't want to die. They just wanted to end the pain. Uh, there's another one where a lot of people believe if you're depressed and suicidal, you're that way 24-7, 365. And if you're getting therapy and medication, chances are that's not the case. I was out walking the dogs one morning. I drove two miles to the head of a logging trail here in Oregon where we walk. I walked half mile up the trail and I had a heart attack. And I knew it was a heart attack because I've had heart issues and it presented in the same spot all my heart issues have presented in the past. Only in the past, when like a valve problem, if I stopped moving, 
it would stop hurting. In this case, I stopped moving and it got worse. So now I'm having a heart attack. Uh, dogs are freaking out. They're like, dude, you have got to get back to the car. Um, we're dogs. <laughs> we can't drive. Hello. Uh, and I can't hitchhike. Got no thumbs. Hello. So I tell people, if I'd wanted to die a terribly socially acceptable death, I could have just sat down, if I'd been in a bad place that day, and let the heart attack run its course. And the paramedics would eventually find me. And they would say, oh, man, he just couldn't make it out of the woods. But he had a cell phone. Oh, wait. He had T-Mobile, so no service. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so that's a, that's, that is a, you know, just assume you're always depressed 24-7. If you're getting therapy and you're getting the right medication, good days and bad days. I have more good days and bad days. The thing I didn't do that I wish I'd done that would have gone viral, even though the T-Mobile phone wasn't working on the cell, I should have turned the camera around and walked down that hill saying goodbye to everybody. Because if I it made it out, which I did, and I wasn't just going to say goodbye to everybody. Oh, Jane, you're my little sister. You're the best little sister in the world. And Andy, that's her husband, you're the biggest dick I know. And <laughs> so it's going to be back and forth, back and forth. I've always wanted to say this about, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Everybody knows you're gay. Come out of the closet. <laughs> it would have gone viral like that. Yeah. I can't oh, believe. Oh, my gosh. You know what I was thinking coming down the hill? Because people ask me. Because, I'm, you know, when you're heart attack, when you have a heart attack, the muscle is dying. Um, what saved me was I, I, I work out five days a week when I'm on the cruise ship, seven days a week on the elliptical runner for an hour at like 25, which is as high as it goes. I mean, it just didn't start there, but I got there. Well, if you put your heart under load every day, if you have an episode, the other you know, architecture around your heart it does something called vasodilate. It opens up as far as it possibly can and works hard to push blood to the part of the heart muscle that's dying. As my cardiologist said, uh, he's looking at me in the um, cath lab. We're looking at my heart live on the screen because they put a catheter in and they can see it. He goes, man, you walked a half mile and drove two miles home having that fucking heart attack? What have you been doing the last six months? I go, well, I've been working on the ships. I've been doing the elliptical. It's a good thing. If you've been sitting on your ass, you'd be dead because that is something else. Um, the, the, I can't remember what I was going to tell you after that. Uh, heart attack. Hmm. Well, and by the way, um, tragedy plus time equals comedy. The longer you do comedy, the shorter the amount of time. I was doing comedy in real time, having a heart attack. I get to, I get, and by the way, a little something for your listeners. Um, if you go to the emergency room and you tell them you have heart attack symptoms, there's no waiting. Yeah, nobody gives a shippa about HIPAA. Uh, I tell people, look, if you got a broken nose, go in. I think I broke my nose, and I believe I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> You'll get your nose fixed a whole lot faster. Because, uh, so I'm lying there on the gurney in the, my little triage unit with my nurse. And she says, Frank, obviously no paperwork because you're having a heart attack. But I just have to ask you, I got to ask you one question. I said to her, having a heart attack, I said, I'm married, honey, but I love the way you think. <laughs> She's trying not to laugh. She goes, no, 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 your full name is Frank Marshall King III, but what do you like to be called? Again, in the middle of a massive heart attack, Big Daddy. <laughs> so to this day, when I go back to Oregon Heart and Vascular and I see people that I met that morning, hey, Big Daddy, how's it hanging? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I am my cardiologist's favorite patient because I take care of myself. You know, most of his patients, they call them frequent flyers. They get a double bypass, triple bypass. They go back out and take up the same bad habits that, so, I mean, I'm, I 
I work out like a fiend. I eat like a monk. Um, you know, it's anyway, anyway, that's, that's as close as I've come to dying that hill, uh, as, as I was probably closer then though. I had a gun in my mouth because I wasn't going to pull the trigger, but up there it could have, could have happened. I could have died. Uh, although, Oh, I know I was going to tell you what I was thinking when I was coming down the hill. Two things. We're pet people, pet centered family. Uh, and we're like the Marine Corps. We leave nobody behind. So I knew if I didn't get back to the car, the dogs would eventually end up out in the street running back and forth. It's not a particularly, not a particularly busy street, but these logging trucks go by just hauling ass. Yeah. I knew that would not end well. So I knew I had to get back to that truck and at least get them in the back of that vehicle and the door closed before I died. So I'm thinking about that going down the hill. And I was also thinking as I'm walking down the hill like Frankenstein, oh man, all that time and energy I put into that TED talk because it was like two weeks later I was going to do it. And, and all the people I could have saved by coming out is depressed and suicidal. So I'm crying now, not because I'm dying. It's because I'm not going to be able to give this talk and, you know, conceivably save a bunch of people from dying. Fortunately, I made it there. I'll get this. I get back to my house and I didn't want to pick up the phone because I was afraid I'd dial 911 and <laughs> collapse. My wife would come out and go, what are you doing lying on the floor? So I yelled at my wife, honey, I'm having a heart attack. Dial 911. I hear this. I'm in the bathroom. I got the fan on. I can't hear you. <laughs> Oh, I walked a half mile, drove to it. I'm going to die in my hall. She, she opens the bathroom door, took one look at my face, her joke. She says it was whiter than the Republican Party and called the paramedics. And they, we live out in the country about 25, mi- 25 minutes out. Fortunately, there are three EMTs who live along our streets. So all their phones went off at the same time. They came into my driveway in their personal cars, you know, waiting for the bus to arrive. So yeah, within within ninety seconds, there's three paramedics in my bedroom hooking me up to the IV and you know, give me nitroglycerin. So it's uh, anyway, that's another misconception that we have depression and thoughts of suicide twenty four seven three sixty five. Uh, here's another one, and it's a big one. Uh, suicide is a selfish act. In the mind of the person who's thinking about suicide, it is exactly the opposite. One of the three elements of someone who's rolling up to suicide, there's social isolation. There is, um, you've already crossed the barrier where you're willing to kill yourself. And the third is something called burdensomeness. You believe the world would be better off without you. Now, I knew my wife would be heartbroken, but she'd be restored financially if she got that million dollars. So I believed that what I was doing was an unselfish act. And many times that's what people believe who are dying by suicide because they think everybody would be better off. Now, chances are everybody doesn't feel that way. That's just in the mind of the person who is, but to them, it is an unselfish act. You know, didn't, didn't he think about his family before he did it? Yeah. Matter of fact, he probably did it because he was thinking about his family. He figured they'd be better off without. So that, that's the, the third big misconception. Oh, and I love this. It's an act of a coward. Okay. I tell you what, let me shove this gun in your mouth, pull the hammer back and, and we'll see if you wet your pants. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it takes a lot of balls to put a gun in your mouth and pull the hammer back and blow your brains out. Yeah, it's not an act of a coward. Um, I think what they're saying is it's cowardice because you don't want to face whatever comes next. And I think in some cases, like if you're a high school principal and you've been, you know, playing slap and tickle, touching feely with students, and you know you're going to end up in the, you know, in general pop in a federal penitentiary getting, you know, somebody's bitch for the next <laughs> next 40 years. That's an act of cowardice because you just can't see how life's going to get any better from that point. But for the you know for people who are just depressed and suicidal, not a pedophile, 
then it's not really an act of cowardice either. But, and I understand why those are misconceptions. It's, you know, it's, it's a, because nobody talks about it. If, if, if we talked about it more, they would, and I, I speak not only to educate the people in the uh, audience uh, who are normal, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I speak, I, I mentioned uh, my background to, so the people in the audience who are mentally ill will know that I hear the same music they do. I get it. But also to educate the people who are neuronormal or neurotypical who want to help. Because most people want to help somebody who's depressed or suicidal. They just don't have any clue. And they don't, and here's the thing. They don't want to say the wrong thing and have something happen. So what I do is I teach them the wrong, here's what you don't say. And then I do what, here's what you do say. Here's what you don't say. Here's what you don't do. Here's what you do do. So they have a, a set of do's and don'ts. So they, you know, I try to get them to the point where they're sort of like, mental health first responders. Your job's not to fix them. Just stabilize them, keep them alive till the professional help gets there. By the way, for your listeners, the question often comes up, when do you dial 911? If they're in immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, you got no choice. Now, in most states, that means they're going to get an involuntary three-day stay in a mental health facility with no shoestrings or belt. They're going to be pissed. But I'd much rather have them pissed and alive and unfriending me on Facebook than dead. So, yeah, it's because um, I get that question. What should I do? Should I tell you know college kids? Should I tell her parents? Yes, but she made me promise not to. I don't care. <laughs> Fuck that. Tell her parents. You know, I mean, because how are you gonna feel if you kept the promise and she kills herself? So anyway, very true. That's good to know. Yeah, more than you ever wanted to know, I'm sure. And backtracking, you were talking about being on tour with all these big time comedians. Yeah. Um, how did you parlay that into writing for Jay Leno? Um, back in the day, Leno became the permanent guest host. And I found out there are a bunch of comics who are writing for him by fax. Because what would happen is Johnny would announce to the staff, Johnny Carson, yeah. I'm taking off next week. Now, Mondays was a rerun always, best of Carson. But Jay had to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 18 jokes per monologue. And he had a long weekend to get it all together. So he thought, why not put the word out to the comics? So I got the paperwork to be an independent contractor. I got the fax number. And over time, they would change the fax number to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, the dead, the dead, the, you know, the, the people who really weren't contributing. And each time I got the new fax number. And then when he got the job at NBC and on the Tonight Show for real, they changed the fax number again. And they, and they kept on a certain number of us contractors to continue working remotely. And I had a joke or two in the monologue every week. Um, I had two on his very first show because I know comics. They're lazy. So there's a two-week break between Johnny and Jay, and I knew the comics wouldn't be sending in jokes because they're lazy. Nobody becomes a comedian because they got a great work ethic. So um, first joke was a um, guy got stung to death by bees in Texas. And the joke was, oh, it wasn't uh, African killer bees. It was ordinary honeybees upset over the Rodney King verdict because that was about the time frame. <laughs> and the second one was Dan Quayle, former vice president, said that Murphy Brown, sitcom star, Murphy Brown, the show, Murphy Brown had a child out of wedlock. on the, And that was part of the show. That was part of the plot. Mom, not married, has a child. Somebody asked Quayle um, what he thought of that. And Quayle said he did not agree with that. He said, where would a where would I have been without my dad, period? My punchline was, my guess, Vietnam. <laughs> and those two were in the first monologue. Uh, 
Jay when Jay took over. So, and he's a really nice guy. You know, when he got done, when they when they let him go from the Tonight Show and, and went to Jimmy Fallon or whatever, I called him up and said, Jay, would you do a little demo video, you know, um, testimonial for me? I, you know, I'm still going to be with his uh, NBC, NBC, everything like that. Uh, i tell you what I'm going to do. Um, um, if you ever get another shot at the morning show uh, and it's between you and another guy, call up Helga, his assistant. Give it a phone number to the guy's name, and um, um, I'll call him up, see if I can't strong arm him into hiring you. So I've been sitting on that favor for quite some time. Actually, we're, we're producing a book. It should be on Thanksgiving, a men's mental mechanical manual. One of my co-authors, two women, uh, went to look for a book on men's mental health at Barnes & Noble, you know, the brick-and-mortar store. Nothing. Went online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, nothing, nothing. There's a hole in the market, she said to herself. So these two women, a psychologist and a therapist, got together to write this book. Uh, and they called me up, would I make it funny? And I said, well, wait a minute. You two women are writing a book on men's mental fitness. Don't you think you might need, I don't know, a man? <laughs> so I agreed to make it funny. Two conditions. One, I was a co-author. It's an anthology, men's stories. And two, that I get to voice it for Audible because I voice books occasionally for Audible for other people. And, and so I'd like to, you know, like to have my, my voice up there. So anyway, um, it should be out uh, Thanksgiving. And it actually was, two, it was supposed to be a 200-page book. It turned into 800 pages. So we've divided into four books. So we'll release one at a time, uh, 10 or 12 stories of men, how they're handling whatever problem it is. Because men tend to take advice from men. Men mentor men. My wife will tell you. She could give me a Nobel Prize winning idea. I would poo-poo it. If the mailman told me the same thing, I'm buying tickets to go pick up the hardware when they get the Nobel. Yeah. So that's because that's, that's why men, that's why men, that's why eight out of 10 suicides in the U.S. right this minute are men age 45, 54. Because they, they, they have that, you know, big boys don't cry, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They don't reach out. Um, so that's, you know, we're trying to cut that number down. Number one at-risk occupation in the U.S., suicide, construction. Men and rough-and-tumble men. That's the kind of guys who are going to, you know, farmers are right there with them, and the farm economy is in the tank. I got a call yesterday from um, Nebraska, and I'm, I'm hoping I'll be speaking for those guys in April. The uh, Farm Bureau may be one of the sponsors, and they've only just lost a young man 35 years old uh, in the last month, suicide, because commodity prices are down, farm income's down, the, the tariffs, you know, all that nonsense. And so farm is tough enough on an average day. But when you throw all that in, plus Nebraska was underwater for weeks this past spring. So anyway. So as far as your job now, you mentioned how it's 75% speaking, 25% comedy. Yeah. What's the most rewarding part of your job day to day? Talking about financially? Um, financially, it's a speaking because my fever for speaking is is – stupid money um because nobody wants to talk about it out loud so they would have paid me a lot of money to come in and go i'm crazy as hell where's my check uh the reward actually uh, the uh what was it the not the intangible reward is this remember i told you that almost every time i speak somebody comes up afterwards they've got chronic suicidality i believe and i believe i have taken them by speaking off the path to suicide because they're probably going to be, you know, they think about it all the time. They think they're alone. They're a freak. Nobody gets it. And all of a sudden they find out there's a lot of us. 
so that I believe I've taken them off the path to suicide. Maybe with luck, they'll live a normal life. Um, and one day I was in uh, Montana last January, spoke at a college, standing outside waiting for my ride. It's dusk, starting to snow. I'm thinking about all the people who've come up to me afterwards and how their lives have changed by hearing me speak. And I thought, oh, dear God, I am George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I've been shown how other people's lives would be different if I was not there, like the character in the movie. Not there to speak and, and tell them that they are not alone. Uh, and then my second thought was, now I can't kill myself because I would take all those people with me. So that's the ROI. Uh, I did a dental function last January, shortly before this snow business. Uh, a woman came up to me. Everybody else is walking out of the room. She's walking toward me. I can see she's crying. When she gets to me, she's not just crying. She's weeping silently, but so hard she cannot speak. So I said, you have chronic suicidality. She nods. I said, you didn't know it had a name. Nod. I said, you just thought you were some kind of freak. Nod. I said, do you have a therapist back home? Nod. Well, when you get back home, make an appointment. And, oh, I said, for God's sakes, Tell them everything you learned, but tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. And she nods and goes. And a week later, I got an email, and she said, Frank, I think I was at that dental conference simply to meet you. You changed my life, and I cannot say that about a lot of people. That is the ROI beyond the paycheck. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's um, actually I got the idea from a friend of mine whose dad was an alcoholic and got into AA and was in it for 20 years and sponsored a lot of people. And my friend John Stamper was telling me the story of his dad because somebody said to John's dad, will you ever drink again? And John's dad said, no. And they go, how do you know that? He said, because if I dive back into that bottle, given all the people I've sponsored and all the people I'm going to sponsor, then I would take those people with me so i can't somebody said to me you mean you couldn't live with that i said no dude i couldn't die with that that's powerful man that's the roi so in terms of this conversation and just your message in general what's the one thing you want our listeners to take away um that 20 percent of the population has a mental illness Diagnosed, undiagnosed, treated, untreated, undertreated. So chances are you're not alone. Um, that the eight out of ten people who are depressed and suicidal are reaching out for help in one way or another. In the week before people attempt a suicide, ninety percent of them give direct or indirect hints or behavioral hints. So you just have to know what to listen for. So for the normal people, I would say you know find out what those signs and symptoms are. And be on the lookout. And for the people who have mental illness, um, I would encourage you to share with someone you trust. <laughs> if, if you can't find a normal person, call the number in the show notes and I'll walk you through. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because uh, sometimes it's just a matter of, because people say, what do I, I've got a friend who's depressed. What do I say? Don't say anything. Just actively listen. Let them talk at length. And by the way, I mean in a place where it's private and where you don't have another appointment lined up so you're not having to look at your watch and you're in a good place mentally and physically yourself because you may hear some things that scare you. 
So you need to be, you know, centered and feeling good mentally and physically before you sit down. There's a great course called Mental Health First Aid. If you type in Mental Health First Aid, I think it's .com. They're all over the country. They cost anywhere from zero dollars to like twenty-five bucks, eight hours, and it's a primer. It's like Mental Health 101. They cover a wide range of mental illnesses. They give you a ring binder. In the ring binder, signs, symptoms, and then what do you do? And resources. So if you had somebody in your family who was self, it's called non-lethal self-harm. You have a niece cutting herself. <laughs> Look it up and find, figure out, you know, what's, what's involved. Is this, is this like, in a, you know, like a way to roll up to suicide? You're just kind of experimenting, which it is not generally. But you wouldn't know that unless you read. And then what do you do? What do you do for a child who's self-mutilated? You know, what's, what's going on? So it's called mental health first aid. Uh, there's an association, or uh, yeah, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. They've got a chapter in just about every county in the country. They have peer-to-peer counseling, family-to-family counseling, classes. If your child's schizophrenic, they've got a 12-week class, one night a week. They teach you how to relate to the child, what to say, what not to say, how to find resources. And here's the best part. Everything that NAMI, NAMI does, it's free. So mental health first aid, 25 bucks, and they toss in lunch. And then um, NAMI, everything they do is free. So those those are the resources I would recommend. Frank, this has been awesome, man. This has been a lot of fun. We've covered so many different topics. I think this is going to help a lot of people, a lot of our listeners. Um, but before we wrap things up, do you want to tell people where they can find you, how they can support what you've got going on? I'm in WITSEC, so um, we probably shouldn't cover that. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. Yeah, um, I am The Mental Health Comedian. So if you go to thementalhealthcomedian.com or you just type in the words The Mental Health Comedian, you'll find my Facebook page, Instagram, LinkedIn. That's my brand, The Mental Health Comedian. And yeah, and you go to YouTube, type in my name, Frank King, TEDx Talks. You'll find my four talks, all on mental health, one aspect or another. Great. And then that book's coming out. Yeah, it's called Guts. Thanksgiving. Yeah, if you uh, here's a here's a um, the website for it is the www.guts g u t s grit g r i t grind g r i n d guts grit grind dot com and if you scroll down a little ways you'll find the forward to the book and I voiced it so you can listen to the forward and hear what you know why and the guy talks about why this book why now why is it important so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Frank. I appreciate it, man. My pleasure, man. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, learn something new, or especially if you think it'll help a friend or a family member in need, please share it with them. Frank's message has literally saved lives. It saved people's lives. So if this is something that you think would be a good starting point for a difficult conversation, I urge you to share it with them. So thanks again for listening. And remember, Hustle and Motivate is brought to you by JokerBag.com, the home of the underdog.